Hello and welcome to the first episode of our of our podcast, um, where we will be discussing uh, research with uh, with research students. Um, so my name is is Lachlan and I'm a PhD student at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. And uh, briefly, my PhD is focused on uh, the contributions of the X chromosome in autoimmune disease. So I'm interested in why uh, people with an autoimmune disease tend to be female. Um, and I'm joined here with Felix and Imtiaz. So Felix, would you like to... Yeah, hello, hello. Uh, I'm Felix, Felix Cohane. Uh, I'm a PhD student at the School of Medical Sciences at UNSW. Um, and I also uh, work at the Garvin Institute um, partly as well. Um, I'm a cancer biologist, um, particularly interested in a, a, a process called cellular plasticity that allows cancer cells to sort of adapt to biological challenge in the, in the, in the body. Um, and I'm particularly interested in, in using different imaging and analy analytical techniques to, to study those processes. MTS. Hi, my name's MTS. I'm a PhD student at the Department of Exercise Physiology um, at UNSW2. And my research is looking at a link between the gut microbiome and the skeletal muscle adaptations to, to weight training, to put it really, really briefly. Very yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so I think uh, it's always interesting to hear how people you know, getting into research and their, their story. So, Imtiaz, would you like to enlighten us to how you got into your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So, I studied an undergraduate Bachelor of Science in Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. That's where I finished my school and went to university to start. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study, um, but on popping along to the open day, the department and its people seemed really cool. <laughs> Lots of cool equipment. We're doing some cool research there at the time. And it, it just was the only thing I was considering at the time that, you know, kind of struck a chord. So I stuck with it, really enjoyed it, but didn't really have an idea of a, of a career path. And when I got to the end of it, didn't carry on but I decided to work in industry in the in the fitness industry as a as a personal trainer um, and some money post post studies while I kind of figured out what I wanted to do and I also did some teaching at the department at the time part-time um, in exercise science and um, functional anatomy too did that for a few years I think two years and then decided to go back and progress my studies um, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was to, to give me a bit of more of a specialization, and that was exercise rehabilitation. Um, in Australia, it's called exercise physiology, mm -hmm. South Africa, biokinetics, um, oh. some places call it kinesiology. It's musculoskeletal exercise rehab, so end-stage rehab for basically any disease, illness, uh, musculoskeletal injury, um, including mental health, um, mental health issues. I've always been curious, what's the difference between chiropractic and exercise physiology? So, chiropractors do manual therapy, so mm. they will use their hands on your body or tools on your body, um, typically to manipulate uh, muscles and joints. Mm. 
Um, similar with physios, physios do a lot of manual therapy, so massage, um, dry needling, some manipulation if they've studied that as well. Physios are also trained in basic exercise. Physios do really acute rehab. Um, chiros are a lot more niche, chiropractors are a lot more niche, more, okay. more joint um, focused. And then exercise physiologist is very much exercise based, so mm. end stage rehab. So if you had to, for example, um, injure your knee, playing sports or out walking, um, you'd see a physio first, they'd help you reduce inflammation, take care of the early stage of rehab, and then you'd move on into exercise to get you back to functionally fit. The only uh, association I have with chiropractors is from that Simpsons episode with the trash can. One question that I was wondering, is there, um, is there a lot of sort of scientific research in rehabilitation at the moment? Is it, like I can't, uh, I guess, is it sort of catching up with itself in terms of the research and, and the practice or? Yeah, very good question. So there's, there's a lot of, um, exercise rehabilitation research for you know all, all sorts of conditions um, chronic non-specific um, and you know it really does inform clinical practice I think the time it takes to get from let's say publication to clinical practice is still in my opinion a little bit slow mm. it seems to, to take a bit of time to, to get there but I think the good practices, so good EP practices, are more on top of it. So they'll be more regularly keeping up to date with the research and adapting their, their practices accordingly. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, a cream of the crop, so to speak. Yeah. And just kind of following on from that, is it sort of the research is being driven by emerging techniques? Like, so for example, I guess we'll get into your topic shortly, but uh, where you're sort of looking really in detail at, at different um, the microbiome and, and different areas of the body in, in really precise technical detail. Um, so a lot of science, at least in can cancer research, is often thought of you know, being driven by new technological insights. Mm. Is that, do you think, the same for, physio for exercise yeah. physiology? Or yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's science in general. Yeah. You, you, in general, if, yeah. you, if you build a new telescope, you see a lot more. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you are able to assess and evaluate human performance so much more now than, than in the past, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, we've got um, force plates, you know, we've got motion analysis systems, you know, e EMG is almost, you know, it's old now. So electromyography to, to measure muscle activity is, you know, it's, it's considered old now. Mm. Um, you know, Bluetooth allows you to do it in the field and more real time compared to compared to in the lab. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely been driven partly by that, um, and I think also partly because some the prevalence of some conditions has in the in the rehabilitation space or the clinical population space has continued to to increase um, as opposed to to getting better. Mm. Um, so that's definitely part of what's what's driving it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you you did your undergrads. Um, you went out and you got a job, and you wanted to have a bit more, I guess, um, more awareness, more education in in that field, and more flexibility for the types of jobs you you did. So you did a master's degree. 
Yeah. yeah. Masters of Bio-Research and Exercise Rehabilitation. And was that at the University of Auckland? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was there too. Um, and I looked at different types of exercises for people with chronic, non-specific lower back pain. Um, so at that, ta- at that stage, there was a group of Australian-based researchers who were physiotherapists, I think, um, who were really for the use of unstable surfaces. So those big Swiss balls, yoga balls, mm-hmm. um, they were really pushing that as a use of core stability training, um, quote-unquote, <laughs> mm-hmm. for people with low back pain to, to develop their abdominal muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, with, the, with the premise that, you know, if you are experiencing low back pain, um, then it might have something to do with weak core muscles or mm-hmm. trunk muscles. And was that an idea that was sort of taken in by the community throughout the world, or it's very yeah. localized? Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was everywhere, um, and not just in clinical practice. Those Swiss balls were found everywhere. People doing all sorts of exercises on them right. to get better core stability. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it was definitely one of the many, many health and fitness fads that have come up uh, <laughs> over the years. Yeah. So you still see them around, yeah. um, not as much, uh, not as much as before. Um, and that's, you know, partly, you know, how the fitness industry has worked, things come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also partly because people found that, you know, there were more effective ways of, of doing things. <laughs> yeah. And is that sort of where your masters fit in? Yeah. So we looked at trunk muscle activity to see if it would actually change a lot compared to doing it on the ground, on a stable surface, on a variety of exercises. Um, it changed muscle activity and often in areas that weren't being targeted, so to speak. Um, it increased a lot of postural sway. So the force plate showed us that people were naturally more unstable, right? <laughs> they were moving around a lot more. Um, so that whether or not that's good for someone who's in theory got a less stable back, um, is, you know, whether or not that's good for them is, is debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, we also found that they had much more lumbar range of motion. So the, the lumbar spine was moving a lot more on the unstable surface. So the, I, I guess in line with what those physios were trying to promote was that these, um, these stresses would end up encouraging better trunk muscle activation, stronger core, and that would help with the low back pain. Um, but we've, the research has shown that Particular exercises done just on the floor, so stable surface, uh, are pretty effective. Mm. So, you know, at that stage, we, we found that, you know, those big Swiss balls or the balance pads were, were no more effective than doing it on a stable surface, really. Yeah, yeah. but that, that doesn't make as much money. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the problem. It doesn't look as cool. It doesn't look as cool, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> this, this image is, as, as you, you said before, of standing on a yoga ball with like <laughs> weights in hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you kind of got a, maybe not as sexy and a little bit more boring, but I guess that's the stuff that gets you results. Yeah. Um, not as marketable and not as sellable, but you know that's that's the truth, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna get and, you there. That's yeah. great that you had that research project. You know, so many of these projects are kind of tackling these accepted but maybe not always analyzed methods. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
after your masters? Where did where did that take you? Um, into clinical practice initially at the University of Auckland. We had a, a rehabilitation clinic there that was um, educational for. EPs coming into the industry. It was research-based um, and it was also a commercial facility. I worked there for a bit um, and then decided to go back and live in South Africa, my home country as an adult, see what it would be like. I um, ended up co-founding and running a fitness center there. Um, but there we worked with general population. So I, I didn't want to carry on working with the clinical populations. Um, I wasn't as big a passion for me. Um, but also from a commercial perspective, um, the general population is a much bigger piece of the pie, really. Mm. Um, so we worked with quite a vari wide variety of people, but general health and, and fitness, people who just wanted to get healthy, lose weight, have fun doing it, um, high five, <laughs> you know, um, and instill some healthy lifestyle habits. Um, so I've been working in the health and fitness industries now for you know, more than more than 15 years right. coaching people. Um, didn't really think I'd end up doing a, a PhD, um, but, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> often ends up like that, doesn't it? Yeah, often happens like that. I happened to see uh, an advert um, on this gut microbiome and exercise study. And, you know, the exercise side is something I'm, I'm you know, well experienced in. Um, the gut microbiome is completely new to me. Mm. But it's a very, very topical mm. industry at the moment, and I think it's going to keep going that way. Um, so, it, you know, I thought that, you know, the skills I'd gain, the knowledge I'd gain in two areas that are, you know, very much growing mm. um, would certainly put me in at least some good stead. <laughs> I guess yeah. That's a, yeah, I guess a, a lot of people maybe don't know so much about the, the gut microbiome. So do you want to take us through this? overview and sure yeah so the gut micro well let's call it the gut microbiota um, is the collection of microbes in your gut um, microbes are made up of bacteria fungi fungi what do you guys say fungi 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 i got fungi different ways of yeah. saying um uh, archaea um, and also vi viri how do you say viruses? Viruses? Yeah. Viruses. Um, but for the human gut microbiota, it's predominantly bacteria. So when you read or hear gut microbiome or human gut microbiome, it's typically being referred to bacteria. Um, microbiome is the genome of those microbiota. So mm. the microbiota are the actual bugs, so to speak, <laughs> and then the, the microbiome is those bugs and their, their, their genes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to put it really, really, really simply. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, run us through your, your PhDs on. So one of the adaptations to weight training is an increase in muscle mass. Um, and that's been shown to be really good for a variety of health outcomes for cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, in the elderly to prevent falls, bone bone health. Mm. Um, in athletes, it's important um, for, for performance. And my supervisors and I are really interested in maximizing that particular adaptation to weight training, so the increase in muscle mass, um, because it has such far-reaching benefits. 
We believe that there might be a link between the gut microbiome and how well you respond to exercise. So we think that markers in your gut microbiome will or could potentially predict your response to or poor response to, to weight training. Right. Yeah. And so what is already kind of known about the association between the biome and or the biota and exercise? In exercise, it's largely been done on aerobic exercise or cardio, which is the more, more common term. A lot of research has been done looking at how aerobic exercise influences the gut microbiome and it definitely changes it. So people who are doing um, long-term aerobic exercise have a different gut microbiome to sedentary people. Part of those changes have been shown to occur to improve performance. So one of the early studies, for example, on cardio exercise was done on the Boston Marathon runners. I think the 2015 Boston Marathon runners, a big group of people, they um, collected stool samples on the week right before the race and I think a week after the race. Probably a good idea not to do it directly after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good job, man. Yeah. Let's come into it. Yeah. Here's a, <laughs> here's a, here's a jar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that's not what we're doing. Um, and they found um, significant differences between them and, and the microbiome of sedentary people. Um, there was a particular strain, I think it was Phalanella, um, and that proceeded to investigate that further, and they found that there was a microbiome-driven process to help with running performance, really, really simply. Um, and that's one of, the earlier, one of the earlier studies, and it's really grown from there to, to look at other endurance athletes. Um, they've looked at case studies on ultra-endurance athletes mm -hmm. where they tracked one athlete through their preparation during the race, after the race too, um, found similar differences. Um, some research has looked at different sports types mm -hmm. and compared their microbiome profiles and they've found that particular sports have different microbiome profiles. So for example, sports that have um, more short, powerful bursts of activity have a different microbial makeup compared to sports are more long, um, long distance, more endurance based, mm. which is really, really interesting. Um, and then some research on, on rugby players and compared to sedentary athletes, or sedentary people, sorry, uh, sedentary athletes, like couch athletes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if only. If only. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was actually one of the earlier studies, the APC microbiome lab at the University of Cork mm. in Ireland. Um, and given that rugby players are known to do some weight training, mm. we can assume that part of the changes that they, or differences that they found in those athletes compared to sedentary might have something to do with the weight training. Yeah. yeah, surely. I mean, yeah. rugby players are pretty big dudes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all of that research has looked at how sports or exercise influences the gut yes with a view to getting a healthy gut so the idea there is let's promote these types of exercise 
with the view to improving your gut. A healthier gut means a healthier you. Whereas we're looking at it from the flip side. We want to see how the gut influences your adaptations to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, with the long-term view of going, well, okay, we've identified a particular um, microbiome fingerprint that indicates you're going to respond really well to exercise. You're going to get much more muscle mass in response to it. And if we find that fingerprint, then I guess you could go down the route of how, if you don't have that fingerprint, are there things we could do to manipulate the gut microbiome to mm-hmm. give you a similar sort of fingerprint? And on, on the fingerprint, I think also you mentioned it before, just the difference between the biome and the biota. The biome, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is the genetics of the... Yeah, yeah. So how important is that? How important is if, if you've got, say, this is a, a not correct, um, but if you had a fully like monoculture uh, biome with slightly different genetics, is that going to be very important? Are there mutations in the in the bacterial genes and, and things like that that are important? Or are you more interested in sort of like the higher level population analysis of what is actually there? Yeah, so we from my study and most of the studies in the in the field have looked at more of that sort of population analysis. So so who's there? Which what is the composition um, of of the microbiota? So how many species are there of particular types of species? What is their relative proportion? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also what is it that they're doing? Mm. function of those species or the collective functions of those those species um, I'm not sure about new mutations or developing mutations but there probably be a lot of like horizontal gene transfer I guess in mm. those bacterial yeah species, uh, if that's the case I'm wondering also so when they do the biome analysis is it to detect populations through the genetics or are they looking even within say a single population of, of of uh of species are there differences there yeah so you you could do you could do both yeah right depending on how much funding you have really (laughs) (laughs) that's always the issue yeah (laughs) so for example the shotgun um genomics metagenomics will sequence the entire genome of all of the microbes yeah whereas the 16s sequencing um sequences or you know, reads just that one genetic marker, so to speak, mm-hmm. and then references it um, against a massive database of, of known microbes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like mitochondrial 16S. Yeah, 16S RRNA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the mitochondrial yeah. genome. Yeah. Um, which is much, uh, much more cost effective, um, a little bit simpler, but yeah, a lot, a lot cheaper too. Nice. So in your, in your study, I guess the overall structure is track the biome of people before? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to measure the microbiome before. Yeah. And we're going to do that by collecting stool samples. Yeah. We're also collecting blood to look at serum metabolites. So we talked about looking at, you know, sort of compositional makeup of the gut microbiome. Who's, mm. who's there? Um, but... Arguably more important is what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, or maybe even how they're doing it. Yeah. So 
one of the small molecules produced through bacterial fermentation, um, uh, short-chain fatty acids, those typically get re released into, into the bloodstream and go wherever they really are needed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been proposed to be one of the links between the gut microbiome and, and exercise. Um, but butyrate, butyrate, uh, depending on, on how, how do you say it, doctor? I wouldn't have a clue. Butyrate, I guess sounds right. An association with um, sort of biomactivity or biota activity and this production of, of short chain fatty acids. Yeah, which... so those those get, get released into the system and yeah. those short chain fatty acids could have a, a number of you know, good benefits on the on the body. I think there are harmful ones too. So it's there's a bit yeah, of they balance. Yeah, cause inflammation. Inflammation, right? yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's some that cause inflammation, and there's others. For example, butyrate that helps reduce inflammation, um, improves immune response, mm -hmm. um, helps with um, I think nutrient uptake, um, which could be one of the links between the gut microbiome and um, and skeletal muscle in mm -hmm. particular. Um, so you know better better metabolism in in general. So better at metabolizing carbs and amino acids um, to help you build build muscle better. So we'll look at that before. We'll also measure their body composition using a, a DEXA scan, um, dual X-ray absorptiometry. It's a mouthful. Um, so it's a, a scan that will tell us what your whole body level of lean muscle or lean mass is. Mm. That's the one we'll track pre and post. So we'll look at how much the group has gained on average and see if we can find a link between who's there in the gut, what they're doing, and the response to, to weight training. So I, I have a, a, a kind of idea in my head. So I'm, I'm really interested in my research in heterogeneity or uh, sort of variety um, in cancer and how that kind of contributes to some of the poorer outcomes in patients. Like metastasis and therapy resistance. So is there an association in, in the biome with levels of heterogeneity or levels of variety and sort of, yeah, any disease or potentially beneficial um, aspects? So if, if we have a very diverse biome, is that associated with better outcomes or, uh, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, really good question. So firstly, I think on the variety side of things, there's huge individual variability in um, in your microbial profile or microbiome mm. makeup. Massive. It's influenced by diet, you know, the way you're born, breastfeeding, um, who you're living with, who you you know interacting with most of the time, um, your geographical location. So there's a lot of variety there. In general, better diversity is associated with better health outcomes in health outcomes in general. If you think of um, one of the early microbiome videos I looked at um, was the analogy of a forest. So a, f a forest that has large, diver large um, diversity in flora and fauna is considered more healthy. Um, a forest that's been built for forestry, you know, it's really just got one species um, and that's not as healthy. And that's very much the same with the, with the gut. But we don't really fully entirely understand what is a healthy gut versus what's um, an unhealthy, unhealthy gut, sorry. So the, the term dysbiosis um, is often used when, when talking about 
you know, an imbalance in your, your gut microbiota, um, it's, it's still not really that clear what's healthy versus mm. what's not. And that's because of that huge amount of variety yeah. or, or heterogeneity. Yeah. yeah. One of the challenges of, of doing microbiome, gut microbiome research. Yeah. I guess there's, there's no reference. There's no, no like, no, yeah. there's no like you can go, oh, this deviates by this, some proportion yeah. against that because as you said, everyone's got a, in a sort of individual, yeah. um, geographic base. So I think it, it's almost like the, the human genome. It's yeah. like, is that really a reference of the human genome? <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess that's sort of why it's so important to do these time and act like time yeah uh, course analyses absolutely where you're take, tracking patients over over yeah. a long period of time yeah I, I mean you know the perfect study in this would be like a early um intervention sort of maybe not an early intervention but an early tracking imagine if we tracked a human's biome over their whole life over these long longitudinal samples that would be i, th I actually think that there's some sort of research going on like that now is mm. massive citizen science studies going on where they you know they're getting thousands thousands of people through these um through these projects you know the human microbiome project is is one example of that i think it was 1500 ish somewhere around there um people wow. got their got their samples in um and used that to develop a database of you know the microbial makeup of of people of a variety of ethnicities you know that was america it really because we know that the microbiome is influenced by geography you don't really need to be done like everywhere mm. i think i saw an ad at unsw um there's you know a call for participants to to get involved in something like that here you know a big uh, big microbiome project mm. So maybe you could give us just an update on, on where you're at in your PhD. How's it going and, and what stage are you at? Absolutely, yeah. So it, it's going good. Um, took a while to, to get human research approved and up and running again, but we are going. Yeah. Um, and I had to learn a whole bunch of lab skills that are completely foreign to me as an applied exercise physiologist. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on the ground, so to speak, and uh, very rarely, if ever, actually in the lab. Um, I had to remember what a pipette was. <laughs> <laughs> Everything can be taught. Yeah. Yeah. So so we've started um, participants. The first group of participants have started done baseline testing. Yep. Um, they're doing a twelve week exercise intervention, three sessions a week. Um, they do that with me. So learns how to collect blood as well. Amazing, cool skill to have. Not sure if I'll use it beyond this, but <laughs> never know. Mm. Um, get the stool samples, not in a jar. We've got these really cool kits from, uh, yeah. None of us were assuming a jar, yeah. I don't know why. No, because, because people wonder, right? So participants are like, so how do we do this? And then they get a test tube, basically. Um, so previous research required, you know, to collect a whole stool sample. Um, but DNA Genotech, thank you to them. I think Canadian-based company. Um, it's a test tube, basically, that... Uh, comes with a little spatula and a collecting device. You collect less than a teaspoon's worth of stool, put it in. Um, it's got a reagent in there that stabilizes it, um, and it can be stored at room temperature for you know I think at least a month. Mm. So you don't have to worry about cold or free storage. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, I love this idea that we touched on a little bit earlier of um, sort of like 
personalized nutrition or personalized intervention. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, in much of the medical research now, it's heading that way, yeah. especially in Precision cancer. medicine. Precision yes. medicine is yeah. a bit of a hot word at the moment. But yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a hot word in the microbiome space, the microbiome diet space. You know, we were talking about that microbiome fingerprint and yeah. a huge amount of variety um, between people when, when analyzing the gut microbiome. We, we know now that everyone responds to food differently. Everyone's microbiome responds to food differently, um, including clinical populations. For example, diabetics, um, they'll respond to high carbohydrates food differently. And those differences are partly attributed to differences in their microbial, gut mm-hmm. microbial makeup. Yeah. So the way it's going is let's, um, let's measure you at baseline let's track your response to exercise or food or even drugs Mm. and based on that response and your microbial makeup gut microbial makeup we can then precision prescribe diet drugs exercise for you you know it's definitely going that way which is really exciting it's always a shame when the when you you go to a doctor and they're like oh the cure is exercise. <laughs> you don't have a drug for this? Yeah. What is it? 2022, you don't have a little pill to fix me? I've got to go and do some exercise? What is this? I think that's the hardest thing that the industry has has struggled to promote. Because how do you promote the non-sexy boring stuff? Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not really sellable. But I and, think and, and not accessible for a lot of people. I guess um, people... Uh, who are unable to do exercise, that's the sort of yeah, cold yeah. comfort to them, right? Yeah, you know? yep. Yep. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I guess with the that level of variation, do you think in the future there will ever be sort of like this magic pill that every person can take and it will, you know, provide real big outputs in terms of exercise? I, I don't think there'll ever be a, a magic, magic pill mm. um, that kind of, does everything for you. Mm. Um, so, for example, I talked about that Boston Marathon study. Um, that investigator, Jonathan Scheman, Scheman has um, recently founded a company called Fit Biomics. Mm. They've developed, um, after much more research, um, a probiotic pill based on the findings of those early cardio exercises or cardio um, cardio microbiome papers where they identified particular strains of bacteria that were helping to improve performance really yeah so uh, the product is called Nella Nella yeah I'm not, uh, and I think that might have something to do with the bacterial strain Valonella <laughs> yeah. so are they introducing the bacteria into the body or are they kind of trying to f- introduce like it's substrate, so maybe what it likes to eat on and so then to promote a, it? Or? That's a very good question. I'm not sure. It's probably it's a bit what, scary. What, what, information what probably the, like, yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be what's the, the secret stuff. Um, yeah. I'm not sure whether they, you know, whether it's similar to a f- um, fecal microbiome transplant, mm, yeah. where, you know, there's there's a lot of cultures in the, in the pool. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly mm. how they do it. Um, but... One thing I can tell you is that having experienced uh, 
exercise, fitness, and the supplement industry. Mm, yeah. It's gonna go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess another thought I, I have is how do you kind of separate yourself from like I'm as a as a preface, I, I feel like I'm a very cynical person <laughs> in general, but how do you how do you think in the future if uh, continuing with research and, and you know in biotech or any kind of industry that you move into how do you sort of separate yourself from the kind of crap, you know? Like, I don't, I don't want to say crap, but, like, <laughs> the stuff that maybe isn't always working 100%, but let's tell no one what's in it and let's give it to people as, yeah. you know, nutritions or whatever. How, how, how do you think you'll tackle that issue and change the sort of, I guess, negative aspects that some people might have with nutrition? Man, that's such a really... Wait, wait, are you saying that the supplement industry <laughs> is in a well-researched, uh, perfect industry? Of are you course, saying if I, if I take <laughs> like, 10 times the amount of amino acids that I'll ever need in a pill, yeah. I'm not going to be better? As what? long as it costs uh, $14 a pill. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, this company, Fit Biomics, is a really good, um, you know, perhaps answer to that question is... It's really good research. Mm-hmm. That's, so it's really evidence-based, peer-reviewed research that's resulted in where they've gotten to. And what's cool is it hasn't stayed in the lab forever. I think often with, with the biotech or SynBio stuff, it's, it stays in the lab so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays with technology, we can, we can get it to consumer a little, little sooner. It's, I think it's always going to be really hard to sift out the really good stuff from the crap, so to speak, mm-hmm. as you say. Um, and that's where science communication from, from the industry, from the exercise physiology industry, you know, could be, could be, could be much better. Yeah. yeah, much better for people on the ground, so yeah. the lay public, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's difficult, it's not easy, because there's so much noise out there. Yeah. And the noise isn't just supplement companies the noise is Macca's KFC all the other mm. other other products Coca-Cola yeah. you know that's constantly in your sight you're constantly consuming it visually mm. um, and you're hearing it all the time too um, and that you know it's, it's really difficult that makes makes that, that mm. those decisions a lot lot harder so if you're someone listening to this that's not sure about, you know, particular supplements, um, the best I, advice I can give you is to seek out a professional, really. Mm. When in doubt, refer out. Be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, find a professional, an accredited yeah. uh, dietitian. Let's Google nutritionist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's Google diagnosing. And understand that they are probably going to help you improve your long-term behaviors as mm. opposed to like this is a something that you should yeah. be taking yeah, yeah. that's it's more yeah. important actually on, on that note if um if, if you're listening and you live in new south wales um new south wales health has just released this um healthy living program and you get like i want to say six free sessions with a dietitian oh. um or, or someone in, in that space that can help you. Um, yeah, I saw this pop up on Instagram the other day. Um, yeah, totally free. They help you with like diet and exercise and over the phone. That's awesome. It's a really good yeah. Yeah. initiative. Yeah. 
yeah more people need that sort of that sort of access yeah guidance yeah, yeah. guidance yeah i guess uh maybe as a kind of closing note um yeah like science communication is ultimately the most important aspect of what we do i guess and you know we can all do fantastic research but if no one can really understand it what's really <laughs> the point of it yeah um so taking methods to do that like for example this podcast is <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of where this initiated from is being able to communicate some of the science to others um so please do share it around with other people and and get back to us if you if you like it or if you have any other uh feedback for us absolutely and if you've got um ideas on other people if you'd like to put your hand up and come on and talk about what it is that you're doing and it doesn't have to be science research it could be any sort of research that you're doing and likewise if you got questions about today's topic um, plug them in the comments yeah yeah all right thank you for joining us for the first episode and we'll see you for the next one <laughs> thanks yeah. so much